Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to the show. I am fresh off a plane from Italy to do this very special show today because this is, I think, obviously one of the biggest social crises facing the country. Britain's households have been reduced to cash machines for the shareholders of the big energy giants. Now, I hope when we have a better social and economic order, ever the optimist, that historians will look back at the broken model of the 2020s and just look at these two statistics alongside each other, which really do not need any further explanation, which is that BP, one of the energy companies alone, made... £6.9 billion worth of profits. That's the second highest ever. Whilst the average household energy bill in this country is expected to reach more than £3,600 a year by the winter. A bleak winter indeed. Now, obviously, millions of households cannot afford this. This is a country in which parents skip hot meals to make sure that their children are fed. This is where people lie awake at night, of course, panicking over that unopened energy bills. Now, those shareholders can expect, in terms of the misery they can expect, are hangovers from one too many champagne dinners, courtesy of the massive dividends being shoved into their bank balances. Now, some will say, oh, the Tories did a windfall tax. They did a windfall tax back in May after huge pressure. They buckled. Now, the extra 25% the companies, the big energy companies expected to pay only applies from three weeks ago. So these vast profits we're talking about, they're not going to be affected at all. And at the same time, they're essentially profiteering from the war in Ukraine, which is, of course, is what has what's been attributed, what's been held responsible for this surge. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about why the energy industry, which in the 1980s, Thatcherism handed over wholesale uh, to private profiteers, why it's broken. But crucially as well, what we're going to do is talk about where we go next. Now, one of the things we are going to talk about is actually the case for a more ambitious tax on what exists now. The reason for that is that's the best you're going to hope for under conservative rule, realistically. I mean, some would say, <laughs> as we know, Keir Starmer during the leadership election uh, did put his hand up uh, affirmatively when he was asked if he supported nationalisation. I say that because in the same pledges, he put common ownership, which clearly was supposed to be interpreted as public ownership, but he tries to wriggle out of that by saying, oh, no, I don't need nationalisation. He put his hand up on national television to say he supported nationalisation of energy. He then backtracked that on that as well as his other pledges. But we are going to talk about a tax, a more ambitious tax, in the current context, but we're also going to talk, of course, about bringing the industry under public ownership. Um, now, we've got two very brilliant guests today. We're very lucky, as ever, to have absolutely fantastic guests. Before we go on and bring them in, because I think you're probably tuning in to listen to them rather than myself, especially given we literally just got off a plane. You can see I'm essentially melting live on air. Um, 
so what we're uh, what we're going to do first of all is encourage you, of course, if you're watching live, click on the YouTube link and press like and subscribe. Um, and also, um, if you're listening to the podcast, do also as well subscribe, spread the word. Uh, and above all else, you can support us using, for example, Super Chat on YouTube, so you can put questions to our two expert guests. Also, though, I'll do a special appeal at the end. The cost of living crisis, we all know, is is biting hard. I know that because a lot of our supporters have said they can't support us anymore and they're putting the cost of living crisis on mass. Now, we're doing lots more documentaries um, with our brilliant videographer, Jack, who did all the brilliant documentaries, Tory conference, etc. all the rest. We're going to Tory conference, the Labour conference. The union rate has gone up to £400 a day. We said from the beginning we pay union rates. Um, in this media landscape, that's very important. We're not bankrolled by billionaires. That's made possible by you, those documentaries running around after Conservative MPs at Tory conference. So if you can support us on patreon.com forward slash 84 to keep the show on the road, only if you can, of course, that would be hugely appreciated. Now, before I bring in, actually, let's just bring in Matthew now. Matthew Lawrence, the brilliant Matthew Lawrence. Good to see you, Matthew. Hi, Owen. How are you? Kind of okay. I should just warn everyone as well. I have plugged in an emergency battery into the camera because we were away, so we hadn't got a charged battery. If I just vanish at some point, you just carry on. I'll, you'll still be able to hear me, but I might just have to mess around with that. But that's fine. We'll just focus on you. So, Matthew, first of all, let's just uh, just just to kind of get the discussion going. Um, let's just hear from Barry Gardner. Actually, Barry Gardner is a Labour MP, uh, and he had this to say in the House of Commons. The UK has the lowest government tax take in the world for offshore oil and gas. Even with the temporary energy profits levy, the tax take will still be 6% lower than the global average, and the new investment allowance announced by the government will compensate companies 91 pence in every pound they spend on new oil and gas projects. So will the government look carefully at the fiscal regime and abolish the obscene subsidy regime, which is distorting investment into outdated fossil fuels instead of new renewables, which do not qualify for that investment allowance. I'm just interested in your reaction to that, first of all. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a very reasonable critique of a windfall tax that is really a windfall tax in name only. It will raise barely anything, as you say. It's only kicking in sort of now, so it sort of misses the extraordinary obscene profits that have been generated by sort of big oil over the last few months. It's got all these loopholes. So actually, in some ways, you know, the UK already has one of the most generous sort of subsidy regimes, oil and gas production, North Sea. This kind of doubles down on that. And the amount it raises relative to the extraordinary sort of surge and profits we're seeing are just deeply inadequate. So I think combined with, you know, the inadequacy of support for renewables in the UK, I think that's, you know, it's spot on, really. Now, Matthew, let's just start these obscene profits. Now, some would say the apologists for the companies will say it's not our fault circumstances being what they are um they'll talk about maybe the cost of production all the rest of it going up what's your response just to unpack tell people explain people clearly why have why are the household bills going up so much and why are these profits suddenly surging at the same time what's happening so there's no doubt there's been a sort of supply side shock so sort of oil and gas production and the oil and gas markets, you know, the price has risen, you know, sort of Ukraine is an obvious, the invasion of Ukraine is an obvious trigger, but there are sort of a whole series of, you know, COVID-related uh, supply chain, 
supply chain shocks as well. But I think the reason it's a crisis of profiteering, not just a crisis of rising of prices, is about, yes, prices are rising, but it's about who is bearing the cost there. Is it companies and so squeezes on their profit margins, or is it households, is it ordinary people? And given we're facing this extraordinary social catastrophe now, and that's before prices, you know, these sort of uh, energy cap rises in the autumn, given we're facing this social catastrophe now, it's fairly clear alongside these extraordinary profits, and it's worth recapping them, the five largest oil and gas companies in the first six months of this year, including BP and Shell, have made almost $100 billion in underlying profits, which is triple their earnings in the first six months of last year. These are extraordinary numbers. You know, what we're seeing is, as prices rise, the adjustment is all on the favour of the companies. It's all on the favour of growing their profit margins. And of course, it's, it's not just you know, in the energy market, we're seeing this across the economy. So we did some analysis with IPPR. In the UK, sort of corporate profits have gone up by roughly 34% on where they were pre-COVID. And yet we're seeing workers being asked to take another hit and we're seeing real incomes being squeezed. So it's all about the crisis is rooted in this inequality in the fact that sort of, you know, corporate power is allowing the extraction of vast sums and the upwards redistribution of our bills going directly into the pockets of shareholders, as you said. Now, in terms of the war itself, is it fair to say this is kind of war profiteering? I say that because in World War One and World War Two, this became a big issue. In fact, Harry Truman, who became president of the United States, made his name in the 1940s denouncing the greed. Specifically, these are military contractors were basically milking the government drive. So it's, it's not the same. I get that. But isn't it the case that they are making money, in a sense, from the killing fields of eastern Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think so the firms are able to generate these extraordinary sort of windfall profits because they can yank up the, you know, the cost because supply is you know, inelastic. It's sort of hard to expand and there's been supply shocks because of, you know, sort of Russia kind of removing itself from the global oil and gas market because of you know, sort of sanctions and the war in Ukraine. But demand remains you know, relatively high. We still need oil and gas every day to, you know, because we failed to get off quickly. Uh, move to renewables. We still needed to heat our homes, to power our industries, to sort of, um, you know, sort of put in our cars, etc. And so, yeah, it is very much these companies are taking advantage of this shock to charge high prices. And I think it's an interesting analogy. I mean, people like Isabella Weber, um, a German political economist who's done a lot of interesting work, have kind of drawn analogies with the post-Second World War period, where actually there were a whole series of interventions in markets, whether it's of price controls, whether it's of new models of ownership, that were used to try and restrain surging profits during and after the war. And that actually constrained inflation. And yet what we're seeing now today is runaway inflation, rising profiteering, and sort of the concentration of power towards corporate giants like BP and Shell. So a comeback from the oil companies, the the energy companies, sorry, and their defenders are, look, we need a good, we need a clean energy transition. And these companies need to invest in that transition. They need to invest in the new industries, new clean energy. And if you whack them with these new taxes, they're not going to invest, not going to be able to have the money to invest in those, those clean energy. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good line. It's unfortunately completely untrue. So I think if we look at that 100 billion that I was mentioning of the big, uh, big five sort of oil giants, almost 50%, I think perhaps even more, has already been shoveled straight out the door to investors and to shareholders. And it's important to remember here that sort of shareholders, you'll often hear on, on BBC Radio 4, frankly, you know, shareholders are you know, little old granny who's getting her sort of pension and it's paying it. And of course, there are some sort of, you know, ordinary pensioners. But the typical sort of shareholder is 
disproportionately much, much wealthier, much whiter, much more male than the average person. And of course, you know, this is about often sort of globally very wealthy investors, not just a typical pensioner. So I think this idea that they need the revenue to invest can be disproved by looking at their own actions. So, for example, BP's share buybacks, which is a way of sort of funneling uh, profits and sort of revenue to or sort of cash to uh, investors, was around $3.5 billion in the last quarter alone. That is more than they're planning to spend on their entire low carbon energy for the whole year, which is roughly about 2.5 billion. Exxon, which, okay, not necessarily a big UK company, but we did some analysis on um, what the oil and gas giants in the US were doing. Exxon spent more on its CEO's pay last year than it did on investment in the low carbon transition. And I think it's important to sort of really stress, and this is, you know, I know Kat will be do a great job on explaining sort of uh, the rationale for public ownership. But this is, you know, in some ways gets the nub of it. You know, we're saying, well, what we need to do is allow huge profits for these companies in the hope that they will invest in this sort of social goal that we want, a rapid and just transition to renewable and clean energy, rather than saying, why don't we have public ownership, public planning and a rationalized transition when we invest based on social and environmental needs, not whether it's a profitable return or not? I mean, it's striking as well, just, I mean, looking at your own research from Commonwealth, that since 2010, these big companies have handed nearly £200 billion to their shareholders and just a whopping amount of money, which obviously could have been used and invested in very different ways from people's bills to, of course, the transition uh, to clean energy. Um, it's also striking. This was analysis done actually back in 2019. But the bi- world's biggest oil and gas companies spend over £150 million a year lobbying politicians to halt, water down and destroy policies required to tackle climate crisis. What they're basically doing is, I mean, they're, they're greenwashing themselves. They're, they'll, they, they know that public opinion has shifted to a position where there is a consensus that action drastically needs to be taken to save the planet from an existential threat, the climate emergency. That's down to the work of, of environmental campaigners. So the public expects that. So then BP and Shell have to, have to clothe themselves in those garbs. But at the same time, they're actually lobbying, aren't they? They're using their might, their economic might, to try and stop the sort of action needed whilst they also shovel div- vast sums of dividends to shareholders instead of investing in the transition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so on, on greenwashing, I would uh, be remiss not to mention my colleague, Adrian Buller's new book, The Value of a Whale, which is a fantastic sort of expose and sort of uh, deep dive into sort of green capitalism and sort of greenwashing. So I'd really recommend that to readers. But I mean, on that point, I mean, I think we've got to understand in some ways we should think about, you know, energy companies less as well, what they do is produce energy and sell it. They are institutions for managing financial flows. And it just so happens that the way to manage financial flows to maximally reward their investors is through the sort of generation of energy. So, and you know, why does that mean they're spending 150 million pounds uh, lobbying, which is tiny really compared to how much they, they actually make? Well, they're doing it because the returns on fossil fuels still far outstrip renewables. So the reason they're not really investing in renewables is not just because they're sort of like, you know, don't like wind farms, is because you make much, much more money on fossil fuels relative to renewables, which kind of makes sense to me because, you know, renewables are, you know, they're sort of a flow, um, as Andreas Malm talks about in his book, fossil capital, whereas fossil fuels are a stock. They're like easy to concentrate, easy to privatize, easy to control. And so they generate roughly on average, like two times as much, you know, a typical return for an investor fossil fuel project relative to renewables. 
So of course you can sort of try and stop and delay the transition because if you are mainly based, you know, if your institution as a company, a for-profit corporation, is about maximizing returns, then other social goals, you know, if they, you know, if they allied with the goal of you know maximizing profits, you might do that. But broadly, your interest is in maximizing profits. It's more profitable at the moment to extract, generate, and sell fossil fuel-based energy than renewables and therefore these companies will be doing as much as they can to sort of slow down the transition to delay it to politically lobby to sustain it and you know bphl you know you mentioned but i mean you know, when you look at what exxon and chevron and the american giants do it's it's completely off the charts um so you're facing this really deeply embedded political opposition but that is rooted in the sort of rationality of what capitalism is about. It's about sort of accumulation and expansion and extraction and sale of fossil fuels has been core to that for you know over 100 years now. It's also striking big energy thrown a million pounds at the Tories since the election. And that's not just, they're not just throwing that money around whimsically, are they? I mean, Rishi Sunak handed them 90% tax breaks, supposedly. I mean, that's for new investment in fossil fuels, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think you know, I think Liz Truss is an ex-Shell employee, although it does look like I'm sort of like, can you see my shirt? It looks like I'm sort of actually <laughs> being sponsored by Shell today, which I can assure you I'm, I'm not. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, there's a Conservative Party, you know, they obviously have privatised much of the UK's um, sort of, you know, BP was, of course, you know, publicly owned. They've privatised sort of the sort of generation, the transmission, the national grid. I mean, I think one thing just to sort of step back which I think problematizes a little bit um, some of these numbers and these big figures for um, you know, people on the left or progressives is that these are extreme numbers, obviously, it's of the, the level of profitability. But it is important to put in context that you know, much of these, much of the wealth is made globally and extracted and expropriated from the land and resources of very often people in the global south, very often who live in sort of, you know, really sort of you know, what's called sacrifice zone, sacrifice to the sort of interest and profitability of these companies. And so I think, you know, in some ways, you know, we should all, you know, yes, we should be using and thinking about how we should squeeze that profit to support households in the UK, but we should also be thinking about these companies, BP and Shell and others are sort of deeply rooted in histories of empire. You know, Kojo Karam's brilliant new book explores that. And, you know, both historic but sort of ongoing processes of unequal exchange in the global economy and so when we talk about these big figures i think we also should be thinking about not just the squeeze of you know in households in the uk which is just you know extraordinarily intense and social catastrophe but also the ongoing social catastrophe that's occurring in the global south and can we repair some of those harms in thinking through how to reimagine oil and gas companies now, just before, I'm going to talk, talk to Kat shortly just about the issue of public ownership and, and how we, we do that. Um, but it is striking. I mean, you know, let me take your man. I mean, obviously, in France, you've got EDF, which is state owned largely. Actually, Emmanuel Macron, no, no, no comrade, I think it's fair to say. But he's actually bringing in um, the remaining kind of privately owned part back under government control. One thing I do want to say is actually interesting. Um, you mentioned, oh, before I mentioned Norway, sorry. Sorry to flit around. You did mention pensions. I think it's quite important to mention that just a bit more because the argument, again, of the big energy companies is if you whack us with windfall taxes, that will hit pensioners. But again, according to your research, which was given prior place in the Guardian newspaper, which we love to see, only 0.2% of BP and Shell stocks are owned by pension funds. So actually, it's completely irrelevant, isn't it? Just It's interesting in Norway, isn't it? Because, they, I mean, I don't think anyone could call Norway an economic basket case. Um, and they've got a permanent windfall tax. And so they've got their corporation tax, but on top of that, a 56%. Um, so that means for every £100 they collect from barrels in the North Sea, 
Britain collects just £8. So, I mean, Norway really does show this is... I don't think anyone would look at Norway and think, that's a... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think it's obviously one of the great historical like turning points in the sort of 70s. You know, Tony Benn and others were arguing for a sort of North Sea Sovereign Wealth Fund. You had sort of you know a publicly owned company was exploring um, the North Sea for exploration for generation. And there were plans to exactly create the type of sort of you know, socialized, you know, collective uh, wealth fund that could be used to then support pensions or other social investments over time. And of course, we took a very different road, which is the privatization of um, you know, public assets in the energy uh, system, using that to sort of pay for uh, you know, Nigel Lawson's uh, tax cuts. Um, I keep mentioning books here, but a really good book here uh, is a book called, which I've now forgotten, but I think it's Britannia, not Britannia Unchained, um, but a book by a couple of um, ex-Guardian um, journalist, Terry McAllister, I think, and one of his colleagues mm-hmm. called Britannia. So there's some sort of oil Britannia, something like that, but it basically traces the history of you know, that decision to privatize and you know, bring in American capital to develop the North Sea and some social consequences. I mean, I just think two other things. I mean, one on the pensions, I think, I think that's an important point because I think the two typical defenses you get is one, well, if you sort of, you know, if you don't let us make mega profits, we won't invest in renewables, but then that's really points well, why on earth you know, are we sort of leaving our future hostage to the goodwill of the profitability decision-making and investment decisions of private corporations? And then two, their second fallback is, well, if you squeeze us, you know, pensioners will be hurt. And I think, A, as you say, like pension funds are now so diversified that the, you know, the sort of hit to a typical pensioner is low, uh, even you know, if you have a windfall tax. And then two, you know, the typical pensioner is not your ordinary person. It's often much wealthier, as I say. So it doesn't really um, stack up. And I think there's a sort of third point there of like, well, again, we shouldn't let dignity and security in retirement be reliant on the whims of financial markets. We should provide that through public pension systems and sort of decommodify security in old age and make it less reliant on the profitability or otherwise of um, you know financial corporations. And then I think the, sort of the third thing just on, you know, Kat will go through it, I'm sure, uh, in depth, but you know, on, on public ownership, it, I think the key thing is, what do we want with an energy system? And obviously there is a slight distinction between firms like BP and Shell, which kind of integrated multinationals versus companies like National Grid, which do transmission, the sort of big five, which supply energy, generators, et cetera, et cetera, all of which is a very rent extractive. But I think, you know, what do we want? You know, if we think of it holistically, we want three things. We want security of supply. So we want the lights to not go on and we don't want our money to be going to funds of, you know, you know sort of authoritarian regimes, which then sort of spend that money on, you know, sort of wars in Yemen or whatever it might be. We want um, security, we want affordability. So, you know, people are being, you know, there's that, you, know, you were a historian, so, you know, you sort of, you know, crucified and so crucifying mankind on a cross of gold around the gold standard. We're literally crucifying people on the cross of profits right now. Mm-hmm. And we can rebalance that, you know, prices have gone up, but we can rebalance that in a way that's much more affordable. We can reform the social security system to sort of, you know, ease that as well. And of course, the third thing we want is, you know, a rapid and fair and clean transition to um, renewable power. And in all of those things, we should be investing and making decisions and planning, not based on the sort of profitability investment decisions, but those three goals and do we maximize them? And so actually, when we talk about what's pragmatic, what's rational, it's actually irrational to leave the meeting of those three goals to companies whose goals are not in meeting those, their goals are in maximizing returns, which is why we've seen these 100 billion in the last six months. And so I think ultimately, like, you know, there really is a tension 
a sort of existential tension to a degree at a planetary level between the basic institutional design of the for-profit corporation as exemplified by BP, Shell, Exxon and others and the sort of basic needs of ordinary people on the planet. And I think that tension has been hugely you know, exacerbated by this crisis, but it remains fundamental to the institutional design of how we organize the energy system. Is it something that's based on you know, literal public power and organized for the public good? Or is it something that ultimately is about sort of profit margins and return profiles of you know, very wealthy investors? And I think that's sort of, you know, when we step back, that's the big question facing us. And I think we sort of need to sort of grip it because energy is the basis of all politics in a way. And if we can sort of democratize energy, democratize ownership of the system, I think we can begin to emerge out of this crisis with a very different sort of trajectory. Matthew, the legend, really appreciate that. What a masterclass as ever. Do obviously look up Matthew Lawrence, Danton's head on Yeah, Twitter. it's another history reference, but you know, I also want to keep a bit of anonymity. anonymity. We love our history. But also uh, do check out Commonwealth work. Uh, it's common for those listening on the podcast. It's common space, then wealth. But look, look up uh, their work on a whole range of issues. It's they're, they're invaluable. I often quote them. In fact, my column this week relies extensively on Matthew and Commonwealth research. Uh, so do obviously check them out and support them in every way you can. Ma Matthew, it's a real honor. I know you've got to go out for dinner, but at such short notice, we only got Matthew at very, very short notice and our next guest. Uh, lots of love and I'll see you soon. Thanks. Uh, before I bring in uh, the brilliant um, Kat Hobbs from uh, We Own It, uh, who we're going to talk to about public ownership, I just I'm quite interested this phenomenon of Martin Lewis because Martin Lewis uh, was someone I guess you you know he's like this the guy you turn to to shop around, get some nice bargain deals, all the rest of it. He's kind of become a bit radicalised, I would say, uh, just because of just the systemic nightmare that's enveloped the country. And he's talking about things as, as systemic problems, how he used to have all these tricks up his sleeve that are now completely irrelevant because life is so hard for people. But just, just an example, this is his, his take on, on the situation with the energy companies. The impact of the spike in gas prices is going to be absolutely devastating. The latest prediction for the price cap is it will go up 77% on the 1st of October taking someone with typical usage from the current £1,971 a year, which was already up over 50%, to £3,500 a year. And then in January, it'll go up again. Now, that £1,500 a year spike is simply unaffordable for millions of homes and is likely to put around 10 million people or more into fuel poverty. Uh, the impact of it, it is frankly catastrophic and intervention is needed and needed now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think, again, just really sums up just how dire the situation is, given, you know, Martin Lewis, as I said, was a consumer champion. Very well-respected individual, probably one of the most well-respected people in the country. Um, but I think fairly radicalised by the crisis that's developed the country. Let's bring in the brilliant Cat Hobbs from We Own It, who really are the go-to place for all issues to do with public ownership and the like. How are you doing, Cat? Great to see you again at such Hi. short notice. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you. I just want to start actually a clip here. There's Miata Fanbulla, who is the CEO, as you know, of the New Economics Foundation. Just here's a little clip from her and I just get your response to this. We don't have the levers to do that. And we ought to because we should strengthen the regulation of the market. My personal view is that when we, for example, at the moment are seeing a lot of small providers going bust, making the market less competitive rather than handing customers over to the big companies and strengthening their market power. Why aren't we creating a public sector operator to take on those customers to disrupt the market and critically to flood it with renewables that are cheaper so that we can flood the market, increase the supply, but flood the market with cheaper energy? So I guess that's a starting point because I want to talk about different approaches to this, I suppose. What's your take on that? Just to kind of setting up, it's a public option that that's what she's talking about. So do you want to explain what's your thoughts on that and how that might work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Nieta is completely right. Um, essentially, what's happening right now is public ownership would be a tool that the government could use at various points in our energy system. Um, the supply market is one of those points, and it's refusing to use public ownership as a tool almost entirely um, to bring down people's bills. So privatisation has failed. It's failed across a whole bunch of public services in energy in particular, even before the energy crisis. You know, we were promised with privatisation and, and the Telsid adverts and all of that, we were promised lower prices, better quality services. And what we've got are, you know, monopolies uh, owned by shareholders around the world um, that charge us rip off prices and don't invest in our energy system. So it's not working for us, the people. And 68% of Red Wall voters, by the way, believe it, that public ownership is the solution. So the government's ignoring a solution that would be really, really popular. Um, but I hope we can kind of go through the different points at which the government could use public ownership as a tool, the way that Miata describes Absolutely. So before we go on to that, I'm just interested first, just because it, just again, just to compare the experience here and what's happened in other countries. I mentioned France there. Again, Macron, not exactly a radical lefty. Uh, EDF, uh, which is mostly already, already mostly nationalised, but they're taking it wholly under public ownership. What's happened in terms of prices, household bills in France compared to here, and why is there such a difference? So EDF was already 84% state-owned. Two-thirds of people in France get their energy from EDF. The government said, okay, we have some, some lever, leverage here. What we'll do is we'll take EDF into full public ownership um, and we'll cap the prices. So they've capped. So while our energy cap increased for the first time by 54%, um, France was capping energy price rises at 4%. So people in France just aren't suffering the way that people are in the UK. Um, and, and there's policies, you know, elsewhere in Europe as well that we can point to where people aren't suffering the same way that we are. Um, 
So, you know, for example, you mentioned Norway earlier, talking to Matt and, and the fact that um, their windfall tax is, is on a completely different scale to ours. What that means in practice is that Norway, um, which, by the way, used a state-owned company, Equinor, to, as you mentioned, explore oil and gas reserves and then to invest that in renewable energy so that, so that Norway's you know, leading the way on, on renewable energy. In this crisis, what they've done is they've, um, they've capped... Um, they've they've limited um, people's bills above a capped um, price of 80%. So again, people in Norway aren't having to pay through the nose because of the crisis, because the government actually used public ownership as a tool to plan ahead, mm -hmm. to invest in renewables, to build up a sovereign wealth fund, mm -hmm. and then to be able to make sure that people could actually afford their energy bills. Speaking of public ownership, we can nationalise the bloody internet connection, my internet provider, just as an example here i think i'm more or less still appearing but virgin media yeah um, we, yeah we'll come on to that some of the time probably um Kat, okay let's just talk about before we move just in terms of where we'd go from here what was the promise of privatization in britain you mentioned tell so you had these big these populist adverts in the 1980s basically where britain would become this property owning shareholding democracy that was what thatcherism spoke about um, what was the promise of energy privatisation when it was sold off? What was the case made for it? And why did it go so badly wrong on its own terms? What's inherently the problem with that privatisation? So, so Thatcher proposed we can all own a bit of British gas and therefore um, we will all own our energy companies. And because there's going to be a market um, where people can choose their supplier, um, you know, then we're going to have lower prices. Um, we're going to have good quality services and all that sounds really nice in theory. The problem with privatisation and particularly the kind of extreme privatisation, well, all privatisation, but the, the extremity of what we've done in this country is we've taken things that are really natural monopolies um, and decided that we have to have a market absolutely everywhere. Um, and in practice, you know, people don't switch energy supplier that much. Um, energy pricing is really confusing. The Office of Fair Trading um, dubs the energy market a confusopoly. Um, you know, the people who most need to switch um, often often don't. Um, and, you know, since uh, energy was, was privatised, what we've seen is that actually people in the UK um, own less and less of our UK companies, fewer and fewer shares in our UK companies. Um, and, you know, Matt and you touched on it, you know, um, we don't we don't own actually. If you look at, for example, BP and Shell, it's 0.2% of, of it is UK pensions. Um, if you look at the energy grid companies, two percent of that is UK pensions. So who does own it? Well, it's it's you know investors around the world, um, and and that's at every stage of the of the process. So you know national grid, which transmits our energy. Um, the sort of the, the big transmission, the high and high voltage transmission across the country, and that's an American company. The uh, and that's a, a monopoly, of course. The regional distribution companies, which again are monopolies, there's no competition. Um, they are owned by shareholders. So, for example, if you're in the northeast, your electricity is brought to you by U.S. billionaire Warren Buffett. He's the one who's profiting from your um, from that aspect of your energy bill costs. Um, if you're in London, it's Lee Ka-shing, who's a Hong Kong billionaire who got a dividend of 237 million last summer and the summer before. Um, so, so transmission is a monopoly that, that where profits flow out to shareholders. Distribution is a monopoly where profits flow out to shareholders. And then the energy supply market is basically a chaotic 
mess um, where you have these big five um, energy companies. People don't switch very much. Um, again, the profits are flowing to you know companies uh, in Spain, in Germany, etc. Um, and so you know we're paying our bills. They're going to be up to five hundred pounds a month. And who's actually benefiting? Not the people of this country. It's striking. I mean, this is research from We Own It, which I'm referring to, but that Britain's one of only two European nations, the other being Portugal, to have entirely flogged off its transmission grid. Portugal did it after the financial crash under huge pressure, I have to say, from international creditors. Um, a national grid in 2021 alone fitted away £1.4 billion in dividends. Obviously, that could have been used for investment instead directly back into the grid. That's so, right. Yeah, go on, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, and and you know, and they're not therefore investing also in the renewable connections that we need. So there's also no sort of planning on that level with that infrastructure. And the government, to some extent, has actually acknowledged this because they've actually separated out one of the functions of national grid, the um, the system operator function, which they're calling the future system operator. Um, and by 2024, that is going to be in public ownership. So you know, at some level, um, the government gets that you can't sort of plan the transition to net zero. Um, without having some degree of kind of control over the system. But that's a bit of a second. So we'll talk about just, let's talk about public ownership and the different kind of approaches to this. So let's start with a public option, for example. So, because I want to talk about just taking the whole lot into public control. So we'll get there, uh, hopefully in practice one day. Uh, but let's just start with a public option. Like what are, the, what are the kind of models available that the government could actually do and you know how would they work what what would be the beneficial side effects consequences so the important thing um in the supply market is you need a publicly owned supply company to be able to operate at scale so um you know knowledgeable people will know we had robin hood energy we had bristol energy those were kind of brave council owned um publicly owned energy companies they didn't work because they weren't operating at the scale that you need so you need to be able to compete with the big five um and the way that you could do that right now is instead of bailing out bulb, which mm -hmm. has collapsed, um, and the government is propping it up at a cost of 2.2 billion to the taxpayer, you could simply take uh, bulbs 1.7 million customers and transfer them to a publicly owned company. And that's the basis of a publicly owned supply company right there. Um, what the government's doing, by the way, is it wants to pay Octopus, another provider, one billion pounds to run Bulb, um, which is a kind of uniquely crazy um, way to approach it. Um, so, so you know, Bulb has already collapsed. It's a big company. If more companies collapse because the supply market is quite chaotic, you know, there have been many, many small suppliers going bust um, recently. You just bring their customer base into the publicly owned supplier, and then you use that public supplier to actually bring down people's energy bills, invest in renewable energy, and make sure that people are getting a decent deal. And I think in a context where, you know, millions of people are potentially thinking about whether they want to not pay their bills, I think people would switch pretty quick to a publicly owned supplier that is offering a better deal on energy bills. And research you actually highlight, we own it, um, points to energy prices that were up to between 20 and 30% lower under public ownership where they op where that operates. And obviously, that's a very important point because there are publicly run energy companies um, in different European countries. Um, in terms of that, let's just talk about just full-blown nationalisation. Because a lot of people, if you look at the, at the polling, a large majority of people support nationalising energy. And actually, a huge number of Conservative voters 
support nationalization of energy. So there's not, you know, there was never public buy-in into these privatizations. People saw what happened. It's not like they have false consciousness. They've lived the realities and it sucks. But a lot of people might go, and this is this is kind of why the way Labour trying to wriggle out of it, basically, of the commitments made by Keir Starmer in the leadership election, because he actually signed up to your commitments. The we own it issued a load of commitments, <laughs> a load of commitments from the leadership candidates to sign up to, and Keir Starmer signed up to your commitments. Um, but a lot of people go, oh, it's a lot of money though. Could we use it in different ways? Can we really afford it? So how would you make the case for it being affordable and even a source of revenue? What, how would it work? Well, there are different components to it, right? So, so at every stage, there's different things that need to happen. So I think if you, if you sort of start at the generation end, the first thing you need to do is have that windfall tax that is at the same level of, as a country like Norway so that you've got you know, billions of pounds flowing in instead of flowing out to, to shareholders. Um, we wouldn't suggest that you nationalize, try to try to nationalize BP or Shell. Um, they are huge multinational um, concerns. That would be very complicated, very expensive, but you tax them the way that other countries like Norway do. Um, then I think if you're sort of moving along in a, in a slightly geeky way along the sort of um, energy process, um, you would create a state-owned renewable energy company. So um, if you look at the countries that are doing best um, according to the World Economic Forum on green transition, UK is in there. We're the only country in the top 10 that doesn't have a state-owned renewable energy company. So what a state-owned renewable energy company does is it drives forward investment in you know, wind, water, solar, etc. Um, it does that creating jobs in the UK um, and profits are flowing back into our country. And like I say, all of those other countries, you know, countries like obviously Norway, Finland, Sweden, uh, France, Iceland, um, New Zealand, these are countries which all have at least a 50% stake in a publicly owned renewable generation company. And the evidence shows that when you have that, um, it not only leads to more investment in renewables directly, but it also um, creates more private investment in, renew in renewables as well. Essentially, the public sector actually takes more risks and uh, pushes things forward. Um, and that's Mazzucato, by the way, if people want to look that up about how, you know, actually the state can be an innovator in that. The, on, in that the entrepreneurial state, as, as yeah, for those looking up, the entrepreneurial state by Mariana Mazzucato, brilliant stuff. Yeah, exactly. So then moving along from generation to transmission distribution, um, you would you would take you would buy back the national grid and the regional distribution companies. And that's the bit that's particularly scary to politicians um, because there is this sense of, oh, you have to compensate shareholders. Oh, it's terribly difficult. Um, uh, but actually, you know, just economically, it's a great investment. Um, if you buy back those shares, um, at uh, the equity value, um, that's around £27.9 billion for the energy networks. And then you're making £3.7 each year because you've got the, sh you've got the dividends um, flowing back in, you've got lower borrowing costs. So essentially, we want to have public assets publicly owned. And as you said, we are the only country in Europe almost that doesn't own our own monopolies are in grids and so we just let other places and, and corporations profit from them and um, so that's the scary bit but it, it does need to be done and it needs to be done for green reasons as well as um, for you know financial reasons and, and just the good deal that that represents 
Um, I mean, on that, it's, it's interesting because the uh, OECD, the Organization for Economic Co Cooperation Development, got that right? Yeah, so it's basically collection and industrialized nations or whatever you want to describe them as. Uh, but they said uh, that state-owned enterprises are driving the growth of renewables, particularly in the electricity sector, which is obviously the point you're making there. Exactly, exactly. And then moving along to supply, you know, there's there's different things you can do. As as your clip from the actor said, you know, you and as we talked about, you can you can use um, Bulb's customer base to create a a publicly owned supplier, and that to me seems like an absolute no brainer. There's no reason why any politician shouldn't want to sign up to that. It makes complete sense. Um, the TUC has just released a report looking at how much it would cost to nationalize the big five energy companies. And actually their calculations suggest it wouldn't cost that much, 2.85 billion pounds, which is not much more than the government have already spent propping up bulb. Um, and, and we're all paying by the way, as these small energy suppliers collapse, we're all paying for the cost of that. So, you know, actually nationalizing those is, is something that we should definitely be talking about. It's but, about know, 15 times less than test and trace. Completely. Completely. Um, but, you know, but, but some of these options are completely cost free. All of these options make sense. I think part of the struggle we deal with with this is that people think it, we have to sort of convey the fact that energy isn't one thing. There's all these different aspects of the system and different solutions are, are needed at each stage. But what they have in common is right now shareholders are ripping us off at every stage when, you know, we have a cost of a cost of living crisis. We have a climate crisis and our energy system is fundamentally failing us on both counts. So we need radical solutions that aren't that radical because other countries do them anyway. I mean, just finally on that, this final kind of question I want to put to you is it's kind of the politics of it because, um, you know, I suppose for a while there was a kind of, you were pushing an open door with the Labour Party, certainly. You obviously had the leadership, which was very well disposed to public ownership. And actually, and, and I think this is a very important point, they were rejecting the old style form of nationalisation, which was pioneered by the post-war Labour government, um, Herbert Morrison was the man responsible for designing that form of nationalization. He was actually Peter Madison's grandfather, for those who don't know who he is. And it was a very basically top-down form of nationalization, very bureaucratic, very undemocratic. Often the people who used to be on the old private companies were put on the public boards, people who had a very private sector mindset put there, workers and service users kind of locked out. And they were they were interested in democratic ownership. Basically, how can you have public ownership that's democratically run by service users um, as well as by having workers' involvement and so socialization rather than nationalization, I suppose. But I, I mean, the point I was going to make, that was long-winded, I'm just interested in putting it in historical context, is, um, as I've said, and I'll keep saying over and over and over again, Kirstarmer made a series of solemn policy commitments, otherwise known as pledges. People should Google what pledge means. It doesn't mean a vague, possible, maybe we might do this. It means a cast iron commitment. John Cruddus, who's kind of from the centre of the Labour Party, has uh, joined the chorus asking Keir Starmer to explain why he's abandoned these pledges. Given, I mean, I think given his dividing line is integrity and honesty. Again, people might go, oh, you're going on about Keir Starmer. Yeah, he's the leader of the opposition and uh, we can't have ideas like this being talked about or discussed because they've slammed the door in the face of the promises that they had to keep to, 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 to push them forward. But I mean, isn't it a bit pointless, basically? And that was the point I was going to get to. It's like, well, we can talk about this now, but the people running the Labour Party, basically a lot of them are ideologically as opposed to public ownership as any conservative is. They don't like it. They don't want it. 
They like the fact we complain about it because they think, well, if these people are complaining about us, we're doing a good job. So where's the hope? <laughs> I think there is hope. Um, just quickly on your on your point about, you know, public ownership of the future is, is actually different from public ownership of the, of the past. And, you know, under Corbyn, there was some really good thinking being done about what democratic public ownership looks like. And so we put together a report called When We Own It, which is saying, how do you involve the public and how do you involve workers in, you know, in, in making democratic public ownership work really, really well? Um, and I think that that's that's really important in the current crisis because everybody is so aware of how desperate the situation is. And actually people want, you know, they want homes to be insulated. They want, you know, new community renewable energy. They want to be, not everybody, but lots of people want to be involved in actually creating solutions. And we need publicly owned structures that help us do that. But yeah, on, on the broader politics, I mean, I think, I think there is a real, I think there's a real issue, if I'm honest, around, you know, the story that got told in the media around buying back these companies um, was, a, was a complete, you know, it was a stream of misinformation. You know, we had, you know, Google alerts for all of the, the terms in the, you know, in the 2019 election for the terms around nationalisation, public ownership, privatisation. And it was just, you know, as you know, it was just hammering those policies. The media was was trying to present them as as impossible, as crazy, as, you know, you know, Jeremy Corbyn wants to sell off your grandma's cat, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And 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 that I think is what Starmer and Co. fear. And so I think there is a I think there is a really important job to be done in sharing what public ownership actually involves, why it's realistic. You know, it's absolutely absurd if we don't have a Labour Party that's committing to a new state-owned renewable energy company. It's absolutely absurd if they don't commit to um, a, you know, to, to, to taking bulb into public ownership and creating that as a basis of a publicly owned supplier, you know, at, at the bare minimum. Um, but, you know, the idea that we're just going to let these monopolies, you know, control our energy system as we try to transition to net zero, you know, Labour's promising to insulate millions of homes they're promising huge amounts of, of wind power you know they've got this sort of five-point pledge how are they going to deliver that without the tools that public ownership gives them they just can't so i think we have to show we have to get them committed to the things that are easier for them to commit to and then we have to show that you know privatization of this sector is 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 illogical and bringing as much public ownership and control in as possible um and, and, and copying the evidence base that we see around the world is the way to go. Just very quickly, Kat, before we go, a uh, question from Tad Campwell. What do you think about the small Scottish model of community wind generation, especially when it takes back on Newsline? Do you have any quick thoughts? Um, I don't think I know enough about that to know, but I think what we need in general is, is small scale. You know, we need communities to get involved and we need those to be able to link up quickly to the national grid. And, you know, that's one reason why ultimately Labour and others need to tackle these these monopolies because right now they're making it really hard to connect up those community yeah. renewable projects to the grid. They're actually slowing down our transition to net zero. Um, so public ownership can interact with community ownership and community initiatives in a really positive way. Brilliant stuff. Kat, you're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for explaining so clearly and concisely how we bring our energy industry away from the failed market dogma and uh, proper public ownership for the sake of our economy, for the sake of struggling households and for the sake of our planet. So really appreciate it. And do look up We Own It, support We Own It. They are an absolute fountain of knowledge and 
expertise in this whole area, as you'd expect. Uh, so look them up and support them as best you can. But cheers, Kat. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Lots of love. Take care. Bye-bye. Brilliant stuff from both of them. This was a very impromptu show because we didn't do one on Sunday because I was at a wedding. So I thought we should just do one now, even though nearly missed it because when we were told the plane was delayed around an hour, I was like, buggered. But we made it just about. It was quite an intense, it was quite dramatic to get to this point, but we got here just before I wrap up. So I think basically the plan is would like to move to two shows a week as well as doing the videos and interviews and documentaries we've got. But we need your support to do that because it costs money to do it. The documentaries uh, we're going to do, not least at Labour and Tory conference, but also the ideas that you submit. We've not been doing because I have been doing my book, which has taken over my life, but I actually genuinely am at the last lap of that now. Um, we pay union wages to uh, our brilliant documentary maker to do those videos, which take a lot of time, energy and resources. So if you want to support us and help us expand our work, now I am finishing my book and we'd like to expand the video channel, you can do that on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. Um, as well as, for example, supporting people who do the clipping on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and the podcast, of course, which is where a lot of you listen to this content because a lot of you obviously listen rather than watch. Probably because you don't want to see my face. I wouldn't want to see my face as much as you all have to. Uh, if I uh, So, you know, I'm, I'm, I apologize, frankly, for my face. Um, but brilliant stuff from both of our guests. We'll have the Sunday show. We will make that work. Um, and we will have lots of interviews and documentaries to come. Thanks to your support on patreon.com forward slash Joan, forward slash Owen Jones. If I don't even know my name, that's where it's got to. Uh, thanks to Tad Campwell and David Barretta. I deleted your question, David, because I'm an idiot. I was trying to wrestle with a microphone and it was sent to me by the producer. And I accidentally, when I was scrolling through the windows and messing around with the microphone, I deleted it. So just... Just DM me or something with it, and I'll try and answer it next week. But thank you as ever. You're an absolute hero. Uh, thank you to everybody else. Um, lots of love. And I will see you very, very... Oh, podcast as well. Listen to the podcast and leave a review. Lots of love, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.